Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Ellie Moxley from State Impact Indiana. State, State Impact Indiana? State Impact Indiana. All right. Uh, State Impact is a, a national program, and they have uh, offices in a lot of states, and Ellie's here in Indiana with us. And um, today we're going to be talking with educators and preschool program administrators about changes to pre-K education and what those might mean for the state. The uh, preschool, preschool education education issue became the the center of attention last month when President Obama mentioned pre-K funding during his State of the Union address, and uh, changes are coming. Head Start funding will be cut 5% by automatic federal spending cuts, and in February, the Indiana House passed a bill that would fund a preschool program for low-income families, but uh, we'll see how that fares in the Senate. So this week, we have Four guests who are going to be joining us. Michael Com Powers is here. Michael is the center director for the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. Tina Pinder is with us. She's childhood educator with Monroe, Monroe County United Ministries. Shannon Kylie Hyder is with us. She's state government relations director for Cummins. And Blakely Clements will be joining us in a little bit. He's the director of Head Start. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. And you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So with all that out of the way, thanks for all being here, Ellie. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, Bob. All right. And thanks for being here. Uh, all you guests, I want to open with a very broad question about preschool education, pre-K education, and, and why it's become such a topic and why it's so important. And I think, uh, Michael, we'll, we'll just start with you. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Well, you know, we've had the research for decades about the impact of high-quality early education. And I think that more recently, uh, Nobel laureate economist James Heckman from the University of Chicago probably have done, has done some of the more recent and best work that has shown pretty conclusively that when we engage in high-quality early education, we see benefits uh, that last the lifetime of children. And, uh, and he also was able to compare the impact and benefits not only of early education but other social service and education programs after kids have grown up. And he's found that, bang for the buck, we get a better return on investment when we invest earlier in children's lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Shannon, what's what's Cummins' involvement? Well, many may be surprised that Cummins is here and talking about early childhood education. Um, we are part of a group in Columbus called the Community Education Coalition, and that is a group of uh, business leaders and, and educators and teachers that get together to kind of discuss the education system in Bartholomew County. Um, Several years ago, we decided to kind of do a a deep dive into our own school system, and we found that 67% of um, children entering uh, kindergarten are not ready for kindergarten. We we base this on the the kindergarten readiness assessment test. So um, we also found that those children tend not to catch up and also struggle to graduate. And when you impact graduation rates, you impact our ability to recruit and retain top talent in the state. Um, so what we decided to do was start our own pilot and um, called the Busy Bees Academy, and we've had phenomenal results. We had 100% of our children um, were, were ready to enter um, kindergarten um, after they completed the program. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Tina from Mackham, um, you know, you, you have worked with, uh, with Head Start or, or with preschool um, kids. So what, what, uh, what are your observations about the importance of it? Oh, goodness. I, I, <laughs> That's I, a broad question. I, it is a broad question, and I really um, agree so much with the things that have already been said. Um, what we see in um, or what I've seen in the field since 1991 is is there is has been a definite decline 
in kindergarten readiness. And what I, I feel like so many people don't understand is how much of the brain is developed before kids go to kindergarten. It's something around a 90%. And if we focus on those early childhood years, um, I do feel like you said more bang for the buck. Mm-hmm. You know, we get we get um, a better return if we're investing in those in those age groups, and that's mm-hmm. what we try to do at Macam. Right, and Blakely Clements has joined us. Blakely, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Um, so Head Start, can you just describe a little bit about what Head Start is? Before okay. we... um, well, first off, my name is Blakely, and I'm the new Head Start director for Monroe County. Um, and what Head Start does is we have a zero to five program in Monroe County. Um, most counties don't have the early Head Start program like we do. Uh, but we do everything from birth, uh, prenatal, all the way until um, they turn five or some are they're almost six by the time they leave our program. Uh, but ours is all about the cognitive development, what she just talked about. Um, everything they learn is all before they get to kindergarten, majority of the time with their brain power and their, and their knowledge that they have. And so uh, we have just restructured the way we do our Head Start. Um, everything is play-based, um, like most Head Starts are, because that's our curriculum by the federal government. Um, and we um, enhance that now uh, with circle time and things that, that we see that, that have come across over the years um, that just aren't helping our children because by the time they get to kindergarten now, as you know, some will start taking um, like the I read as the uh, third graders do. And so we are trying to get ready for that um, uh, at an earlier stage rather than normal. Okay. If you have a question or a comment about uh, pre-K education, you can call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. The uh, website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I think one of the interesting things about preschool education is, as an education reporter, uh, I think it, it, there's, there's pretty broad support for early education, but the thing that really seems to be the hang-up is how to pay for it. Indiana is one of 11 states that currently doesn't have any state money going towards pre-K, though that could be changing if this pilot program passes. But even then, that, that that's pretty small scale, $10 million, approximately 1,000 kids. It'd be limited limited to a few sites within the state. So I guess my question for all of you guys are, and, and maybe Shannon, you can help tackle this because I know this is something that Cummins has, has really looked at is, you know, how do we pay for this? How do we get more money toward it? And how do we convince people that this is a good investment? I think you'll have a the state will have an early investment. Um, like we we've seen the seven or the for every dollar invested, you get seven return in government spending. So I, I think the key here is um, there will be an initial uh, investment into the program, but um, you'll also save you'll save on remediation. And studies are also show that if you graduate from high school, then you're less likely to end up on other social programs. So um, which all speaks to that one to seven number. I know. Um, in Bartholomew County Schools, we spend about 10% of our total budget on remediation. And, you know, I would argue that if the, most of those kids probably wouldn't end up in remediation if they're starting out on the right foot. Mm-hmm. I, I wanna, I'm going to give Michael a chance to answer that, too, but I just wanted to, to sort of jump in and say, is it a, a program on early childhood education? One of the people there was uh, Steve Kane, the superintendent at Richland Bean Blossom, who's been on our show before. And he talked about how some kids come to school, and he said, we have, some of them don't even know their name, that they're, they're, they've been called Sissy or Bubby from the time, you know, they've, they've started, you know, that's what their family calls them, so they're not sure what their real given name is. I, I wonder, is that an exaggeration? Or? No, it's not. We, we hear that a lot and from kindergarten teachers. We, we did a study with uh, Indiana kindergarten teachers a couple of years ago to get an idea of, you know, what are the skills that kids need when they come into kindergarten? You know, what are those early demands? And, and one of the teachers the teacher said just unanimously, it's important that children have that preschool experience because children begin to learn just some of the general expectations of how to participate in a routine and in a context outside of the home environment. You know, there they come. They need to be able to cooperate and get along with others. They need to be able to participate in circle time and the other kinds of educational activities that happen. And that's that's a skill set. And and for families, they don't sometimes realize all the skills that are part of being successful in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And I guess to follow up, I don't didn't want to step on Ellie's question, but doesn't doesn't that kind of uh, that education need to sort of go to people out there who are involved with the funding? Are they aware that 
these are the kinds of challenges being faced. Uh, yeah. I know, especially with our grant, that they are. I mean, we, we, we do um, federal mandates all the time where we have to reply and say, um, this is the percentage of kids that we that can do this in this realm. And so, um, especially when he was talking about the pre part, uh, the nice thing is we have a home-based program where, where they go into the home first off and, and start that whole cognitive development and the understanding of this is something. Don't give it some fun name as you're talking about their, their names. We have them write their names out. Every time they come into class, they see their name. It's on their cubby. It's on their wall. It's on their desk. They write it uh, themselves. And so that's one of the things that we try to get away from is calling them sis or bub or, or hey, buddy. You know, even when I go into the room, I make sure I know their names um, just so I can talk with them because it, it, it helps them understand that there's always an association with something. And so that's where most people fall short on. Mm-hmm. How's Head Start funded? Is it all federal funding? Um, we are all federally funded um, with what most Head Starts are. Okay. And Tina, I saw you sort of nodding your head on that question. I, I do agree with a lot of what Blakely is saying. Uh, having that print-rich environment with the, with the names, and it gives them kind of a self-identity. And, and we do see a lot of um, kids who come in with those nicknames. And I, I believe, uh, you know, one of our main responsibilities after educating the children is educating the parents. And bringing parents into what current day standards are for school, uh, they, it's not like it was when they were in school. And so um, I just finished teaching a parent workshop series on uh, challenging behaviors. And it was interesting to me uh, the, the wide range of um, experiences the participants had. And so we were able to, in a kind of non-judging way, Uh, incorporate all of the um, positive ways to change behavior and improve social skills and and such. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I'm going to follow up because, you know, when we went into kindergartens a couple of years ago, and it had been years before any of us had been in kindergartens, we'd been mostly in preschools, kindergartens changed dramatically. I mean, as as our state legislature and Department of Ed have increased uh, the requirements. Kindergarten isn't all fun and games and a gentle entry into the public school and early elementary grades. Uh, kindergarten teachers right off the bat are are starting to work very rigorously on literacy skills. And so for children who may not have had any kind of a structured early childhood experience, they're already two steps behind. They're still trying to figure out just the social learning demands that are being placed on them, let alone attend to learning their letters and sounds and words. So, um, again, I think because of the increased demands that we're seeing in early elementary grades, it even argues for a greater need for preschool. You know, I, I agree with what you said about the parenting part, and that's the biggest thing that Head Start does is, is we look at the family as a whole. We understand that we have these, you know, 300-some-odd children, but we have these families that, one, probably have never had good parenting skills um, shown to them what they look like um, to understand what their child should be ready for when they go to kindergarten or higher. You know, our goal is to look at lifelong learners. You know, we have to get past the mentality of Head Start of we just got to get them to third grade. You know, we're changing that to where we want them to graduate. And so, and how do we do that? One is we look at the parents. And so when we have them as a, as a, a holistic group, we can look at them on many levels of mental and physical and just their home atmosphere. And so we try to portray that to when they go to school. And that's the hardest thing that our parents sometimes forget is that, you know, at Head Start, we, we have you do these events and we have you come to your classroom. But we're trying to instill that into them that when they leave here that they need to teach other parents to do the same thing. And, mm-hmm. and I think that lacks a lot of times once you get to the, the elementary schools. But back to Ellie's uh, question about funding. I mean, we're, we're not funding full-day kindergarten for all schools now, are we? Well, that's going to happen now. In the okay. recent legislation, you know, they finally have bit the bullet, and the governor has checked off on that. So, you know, in, in a brief that the uh, Center on Education and Evaluation Policy and us just completed, you know, we've made the argument that says, okay, check. We've completed our work, and we are able to now meet the educational needs of our kindergartners. Now it is time to begin looking at preschool. 
school. And and as Shannon said, it is an investment. We're going to see a return on the buck. But if we take advantage of the resources that exist, we have Head Start programs throughout the state. We have public schools, you know, that are using their general education dollars and Title I dollars. We have a lot of resources. So when the state begins to look at how they can begin to invest, and we have Cummins and Lilly and Cook. We have a number of very, you know, far-thinking corporations in our state. So it's not that we have to start from ground zero. We can maximize the investment that we have if we do it in a smart way. I think it's important to highlight, too, that, you know, this isn't a full rollout of pre-K throughout the state. Um, This is a bill that requires parental involvement, which we've seen in Columbus has has probably been the biggest part of the success of Busy Bees. Um, And so when you say it's, you know, this full rollout, you know, it's going to be a huge expense. This is simply a pilot. The pilot has lots of standards, and um, you know we're, we, you know, obviously appreciate the investment in in kindergarten and the state getting that done. But you know, eighty five percent of brain development, you know, takes place prior to age five. So we're we're missing that 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 big portion of time to get involved. And again, it, this is focused on um, lower income Hoosiers. You have to qualify for free and reduced lunch. So this is not a huge rollout for everyone in the state. Mm-hmm. All right. Again, our phone numbers are 855-0811, You can join a live chat, WFIU.org, if you want to uh, give us your opinion on, on the need uh, or lack of need for early childhood education, uh, please feel free uh, to give us a call. Ellie? You know, Shannon, one of the things I, I've been really, really interested in in terms of the, the public support for this program, I know that unfortunately when Columbus, the when Bartholomew County, our consolidated schools tried to pass a referendum in the fall to get additional funding for busy bees, which is my understanding had been the community education coalition's mm-hmm. plan all along is to, you know, launch this program, make it very affordable, not just for families that were on free and reduced price lunches, but for other families, $80 a week at its at its full price is, is a steal for mm-hmm. preschool. I mean, most any parent that, you know, has has shopped around and tried to, you know, um, find a program knows how, how, how small of a number that is. But unfortunately, that program's been forced to scale back without a referendum. So how do you get that buy-in? How do you make sure that people understand? Well, I, I think, it, I don't know if you were in the House here or the Senate hearing, uh, but one of the testifiers um, opposed to the bill um, kind of indicated that was a referendum on you know, pre-K education. And um, I, I think it's important when we talk about this referendum that we, we know actually what, you know, happened. We weren't allowed to mention pre-K or um, free and re- reduced lunch children anywhere in the ballot. It was just a general tax increase that goes to the school system. We had busy bees teachers that showed up and didn't know what they were voting on. Um, this all happened in response to the Wisher referendum. A few of the legislators thought um, that it, it was too one-sided, so decided to to um, really um, put in code what you can and cannot say. And um, I've had a lot of initial initial conversations with legislators that think that maybe that law needs to be relooked at so folks can know what they're actually voting on. I mean, there's something to say, be said about transparency and, you know, in referendums. Sure. And if, if you don't, if for people who don't spend a lot of time looking at referendum language, um, when you go to the ballot, all it says is usually the school district's name, the amount of money. It doesn't, it doesn't have any details about, you know, what the money is actually going towards, mm-hmm. whether it's a building project or it's a, you know, it's something like this, a, a referendum to pay, to involve more students in pre-K. It's, it's really, um, it's very difficult to see from a ballot language what you know what the actual referendum being voted on mm-hmm. is about. Yeah, and you know we're, we're we're looking within our foundation to see you know what additional resources we can put out there for the program, and also are are, are working with community partners to hopefully you know uh, get some additional funding to the program. But um, you know if if ten oh four passes, that may be a pathway for um, some low income Hoosiers students to access our program. Mm-hmm. Um, could you, Shannon? Could you sort of describe what, how many kids went through Busy Bee and what their age, what their ages were? Um, well, we focus just primarily on four-year-olds. Four um, we have right. a, about 165 students. Um, parental involvement is um, required. Um, we have what what is called family school partners that are volunteers volunteers within Columbus that actually go into the homes and stay with 
those families um, up until second grade. Mm-hmm. So um, it could be from, I mean, I, I've heard of stories where they had to teach parents how to, you know, get their children up to go to school and, you know, kind of started getting there at 830 and then finally, you know, worked up to 730 when they actually need to be there. Um, we do the Reggio Emilia philosophy. It's a little different than the play model. It's a project-based model. Um, and, and that's where the students kind of guide, and I think that that's pretty similar with the play model too, yeah. kind of guide the curriculum. So a teacher, for example, will go in and say, um, what would you do this weekend? And um, one student may say, oh, my parents went to a fancy restaurant. And they were like, so you know, off of that, they, they go into kind of a restaurant module. Well, if, if you're going to start a restaurant, what do you need? You need a menu. How do you spell menu? So they're, they're constantly inquiring about, you know, we need, we need the M sound. You know, it's kind of that desire to learn. Um, and then, you know, you need to pay, you know, you need to pay for, you know, entrees. And so you, in a, you learn about math and, and um, you, know, you know, money. And so everything, they start to learn without even really know about, knowing about, you know. <laughs> you're we, we, tricking they, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Kathy King, who runs the Busy Bees Academy, is just, just like, it's trickery at right. the end of the day. But you work the Indiana <laughs> standards back into, you know, these modules. And, you know, we've had, you know, excellent success. And um, a little bit more about our prob- our program is we wanted to kind of take the, the, a snapshot of the average classroom in an in, in Indiana school, school room. So we have 50% that are free and reduced lunch, 50% are scholarship. Um, we have 10% that are English language learners, and we have about 14% that um, are, are special needs. And, you know, we've our English language learners come out fluent, and um, you know everybody ends up ready for kindergarten at the end. Okay, and and Tina, you haven't talked much about your program yet. So, what what uh, what kinds of things do you offer at Macam for the kid for kids? Well, one of the things that I am the most excited about is the um, initiative coming out of uh, IACRA, which is the Climbs Project, and uh, basically it's um, it's called. The Caregivers Learning Learning Indiana's Model for Building Social Skills. And one of the things that is consistently missed in talking about child development, at least on the higher levels, is the importance of social development. And this project um, provides us with on-site technical assistance with a mentor who is an inclusion specialist out of Terre Haute. And... What uh, and training for the staff, and what it does is gives us the tools as educators to help the children develop social emotional competence. And once they can do that, then it opens them up to be more successful learners. So that's one thing that we're doing. Uh, we try to be involved in as much as we can. So we are a nationally accredited program. We uh, also are a level four pass to quality program through the state. Uh, we we stay really busy with um, trying to provide high quality care. And those are the most important things that we that we are working on right now. Okay. Well, we're talking about uh, pre-K education, early childhood education today with uh, four great guests. Uh, Michael Com Powers from the center, center Director for the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. Tina Pender, the Childhood Educator with Monroe County United Ministries. Shannon Kylie Hyder, State Government Relations Director for Cummins Incorporated, and Blakely Clements, the Director of Head Start. Ellie Moxley, a fine education reporter, is here, so we have expertise on our side of the of the room too. Um, so please uh, join us after our break. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. 
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Ellie Moxley from State Impact Indiana. And uh, we're talking about pre-K and early childhood education today and what some uh, some changes coming up and what they might mean. Uh, as I said before the break, we have four uh, guests with us, Michael Com Powers, uh, Tina Pinder, Shannon Kylie Heider, and Blakely Clements. They represent uh, a variety of groups and organizations and perspectives. We'd like to hear what you have to say about these topics, too. So please call us at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. And you can join us online at wfiu.org slash noon edition for a live chat. You know, it's it's a really interesting time to be talking about early education because while President Obama has said that he supports, you know, getting more four-year-olds in pre-K, it's also time that one of the largest, you know, the largest federal to local uh, source of pre-K funding, Head Start, is being impacted by these 5% automatic federal spending cuts. Blakely, can you tell me a little bit more about what that looks like, you know, here at your program as well as across the state? Um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk broad spectrum first. Um, we know that there could be up to 70,000 children across the United States that could lose their spots. Um, that's just right now. We don't know what will happen um, once they pass the new budget, um, if and when they do. And so, you know, we are looking ahead and forging and thinking, how can we use the funds that we have to keep our children and or increase the ability to help our families? And so, um, you know, we've had many conversations, as most people have, about um, what will happen in our community, um, you know, our first and foremost thing is to worry about our children. Um, and so if we do do something, um, you know, we will make sure that they um, are able to work at one of our community partners. Uh, we have over 150 community partners that Head Start in Monroe County has. And so one is sitting right beside me. And so, you know, we, uh, we make sure that we work with them and we, and we know what will happen to the children. Um, w- 5% is a good amount of money. And so uh, we have to look at it as um, how will it impact our children? Um, how will it impact our goals that we have? We just started a new school readiness goals committee. Um, just uh, got them all done. Stacy Edwards, who's here with me today, um, she's my education coordinator. And uh, we just went through, it's, it's about like a 20-page document of what we are going to do above the play-based aspect. And so uh, it's things that we'll be able to do on top of all of this. Um, if we get more community support, mind you, we are working very hard to find more people because it's never been a thing to ever donate to Head Start. Um, if you would like to, you can call us at any time. Um, and we are working really hard on that. Um, it, it could look like in any community. Um, if you saw Columbus, um, their Head Start has already done their cuts. Um, we could lose children. Um, we could lose space. Um, employees. Um, there's just a lot of things that people don't understand that play into a part of just having a classroom. Um, you know, most of the time I have tried to work since I've been here in June to get past the part of we are a um, a daycare. Um, and so that has been our biggest fault. And I know that's the same with Mackham as well as we are not a daycare. We are an entity that is helping your children get ready for school and for the rest of their life. And so these 5% cuts are going to be huge for us. Just just one um, comment on that. The White House sent out a, a briefing sometime in the last couple of weeks um, early on when they were sort of trying to get people to the table to talk about sequestration. And, and it said it had a state-by-state breakdown. And it, it said that funding for about 1,000 Indiana children mm-hmm. in Head Start and early Head Start could, could be cut. Yeah, it could be up to, 1100, oh, up to 1,100. Um, and it just depends on each community. And so um, yeah. ours is we're uh, a one-county entity. And so uh, we have over 324 children in our program, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good amount for such a small area. Right. So, Okay. We have a phone call. I'm Sorry to cut you off, but we want to go to Ken from Morgantown on the phone. Ken? Uh, yes. Um, I'm a, a real fan of, of Head Start, so this is not a hostile question. But I, but I keep hearing... <laughs> Good clarification. I, I, I keep hearing uh, criticisms of Head Start, um, uh, indicating that there are some studies out there saying that a lot of the programs throughout the country uh, are not dovetailing in with the skills that the schools need as the kids progress in. Uh, and are, um, are, are poorly run uh, and need some, some work. Uh, uh, could you just comment on that? And I'll take the uh, answer off the, off the phone. All right, Ken, thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, and, and that's a good question. There's a lot of there's two studies out right now that um, one is solely against us entirely. Um, there's one that is solely for us, and so you can probably guess which side of the field they're both from. Um, they're both from opposite ends of the spectrum, and so um, there are programs that are having troubles, um, and so those um, are being fixed. Um, there's a lot of communities that are um, that are working towards making it a better organization. And as I said, we started in June uh, revamping our entire organization. And so ours right now is an entirely different entity. We have had our regional office in, um, and they are actually sending other head starts to us now because of this wonderful person behind me, Stacy, um, and Janet Edwards, who is my elementary education, uh, early childhood education coordinator, uh, because we are changing. And, and I understand where you're coming from, sir, is that um, is the money worthwhile? And so that's what we're looking at is, and we know that. Um, we do a community assessment every three years. We're in the middle of it. So if anyone like to be a part of it, you can always call us, um, and where we look at what does our community need? How is um, early childhood uh, affecting our community? Our biggest thing that plays into the part of this is, is that there is no other best options, and the program that we are given, um, our creative cur- curriculum, is, is one of those that's mandates from the federal government. We are given areas where we have to do, so when there's a study from the federal government that says we're not doing what we're supposed to, it's kind of like a catch-22, like we're doing what you tell us to do, and so... And that's where we came up with our own entity of our own community, uh, where we're doing our kindergarten readiness room this summer. And next year, we will have classrooms that are based for just four, turning five, kind of like what Busy Bees mm-hmm. does, um, which is something totally outside of the box for this area. Um, and and so I hope that kind of answers his question. Yeah, I want to follow that. You know, the, you know, the research hasn't been real kind with uh, looking at the impact of Head Start. And, you know, that we see incredible gains. You know, children leave Head Start. They're caught up, but by the time we follow them along to second and third grade, we're not seeing a lot of differences. And so uh, some of that, you know, may be because of the quality of the Head Start program, and some of that may be also the response of the public schools in providing those additional remediation efforts to get kids that didn't benefit from Head Start caught up. But, you know, I think the, the positive spin is incredible changes have been happening sometimes thrust upon Head Start programs around the country that I think mount to probably the best quality effort in early education in the country. You know, the Head Start programs are being held incredibly accountable to new standards. And if they don't meet those standards, they're asked, you know, not to apply for funding or they have to uh, compete. And so, uh, and it involves not only the quality of what they do around children and families and their health, but also high-quality education standards. So uh, in the past, you know, where the programs have been a little more play-based or developmentally focused, now this notion of school readiness and taking a stronger educational focus is, is kicking in. And the research is showing that, you know, if we're just a child care focus, we're for just a developmental focus, it's not going to cut anymore, not for the kids that need it the most. We need to do, I think, like what Shannon and folks have done in Columbus and take a stronger educational focus. And it's been painful for some, but in the long run, it'll be incredibly beneficial for the children and families that we're serving. And, and you know, to, to talk about what you talked about when they get to second and third grade, you know, our biggest thing is from our association, not just uh, from us, uh, this Head Start, but from majority of us is we talk about the lack of parent part. Um, there's no buy-in to the parents once they get into the school system. I'm not I'm not dissing school systems by any means. I have a lot of family there, teachers, and they're probably listening right now, and I'm probably getting in trouble. But, <laughs> uh, you know, that's just the thing that we see. And, you know, it's different based on teachers. And so, you know, when they get there, they have standards they have to meet. We understand that. And so, you know, like with Macam, we all look at the state standards and see how can we get those kids ready to get there. And so there's at the end of the day, there's only so many hours that I have with the children um, and there's only so much dollars to have people in there with those expertise. But, you know, we look at it as a holistic thing of how can we serve them better. And with that study, I think it really pushed a lot of head starts to kind of get out of our comfort zone. Um, We have a lot of new directors um, like myself that are that have never been in the realm of this. 
this. Um, you know, I came from United Way, and so I'm looking at it as a, as a, a where can we get them when they go to school. And so we have a different perspective. And Stacy and Janet and I work really well together to talk about these aspects and how and in our schools, you will see now, all of it starts, we have these school readiness goals that I'm looking at. No one on the radio can see me look at these, but um, that um, talk about our uh, the developmental skills that we are looking for. We have all of these new areas that I don't think everyone has gotten to yet. And so we can't always tell people about them unless you come and see. And we invite anyone to come and volunteer because, as you know, 5% of my grant is based off of um, volunteering in kind through our community. And so we, we try to get that play-based uh, across. All right. A couple things. Um, one, I Blakely, would you give your phone number? Because you've, you've invited people to call you yeah, several times. Yeah. For this. Oh. I'm not going to give you my cell phone, but I will give you my office. Um, it is 812-339-3447. You can dial extension 209. That's our receptionist. And Carol will get you in, in, in contact with any of us at any time. Okay. And Tina, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, if I could springboard a little bit sure. off of what's been said. Uh, one of the things that I have found, uh, because we offer a kindergarten program within our oh, um Agency, And one of the things that I've noticed over the years being a parent is uh, when my daughter was in fourth grade, she had my sixth grade teacher. And I said, but Mr. Ralston, why, what are you doing teaching fourth grade? And he said, I'm teaching the same stuff. But now they want it in fourth grade. And in reviewing a lot of the um, recently, the lot of um, common core requirements, I'm looking at it and seeing second grade work being required for our kindergartens. And I'm not sure how that shift occurred, but there, like you said, likely there, are, there is only so much that we can do in early childhood. Uh, I, I'm not going to be teaching kids uh, division, for lack of a better example, in my five-year-old classroom. One thing that I, I think is important to note is uh, learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. Learning disabilities sure. are becoming more diagnosed, which is great. Mm-hmm. But what I found in my own experience with my child is that teachers don't – teachers teach in, in – and, and I, I'm not dissing teachers at all, but they teach one way. And when you have children who have learning disabilities, it makes it very challenging. And it was not until my daughter was a sophomore in high school that her biology teacher figured out – that she wasn't a lazy student, that she was an auditory learner. And once that happened, she became more successful. But it shouldn't have waited until sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, teachers, we, if we're looking at the content of the work that is required, I think we need to look at the skill sets of the teachers as well. And I think that would be that would be helpful. Okay, Blakely, hold the thought. I want to give our numbers again because we we want to get people uh, into our, our conversation. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can join the live chat at wfiu dot org slash noon edition. Now, Blakely, um, you know to kind of springboard what you talked about with disabilities. That is a big piece in our organization. And so when we talked about community partners, we work really well with MCCSC and with RBB. And so we already pre-diagnose children. When when they're in our program so we can kind of see what they need. And, and I know they do probably do the same thing. And so I think that's been a big beneficial aspect to when they know which school they're going to go into, um, what they will need when they get there. Because the, by the time they've been with us, some of our children have been with us for five years at this point. Um, and so we know what they need, how they need. And so we are transitioning into doing transition kindergarten night. And so when we have all the parents, because we have half of our program leaves, you know, um, over half of our program leaves at the end of the school year. And so we have a whole new group of kids that come in every so often that that we look at those families and say, what will you need when you get to kindergarten? So we are having all these people come and speak at our uh, at our eve- at our night. Uh, we take them to the schools. Um, and I think that's beneficial to show them that the parents that, hey, look, it's not a scary place. And I think that's where most parents, uh, you know, in our, our mindset come from, that they're worried about going to school. They don't know the people. Um, and so that's why we have a great partnership with MCCSC. We have a lot of our classrooms in the schools where these children will go. And so we love that partnership, and we hope that it always stays as well. I think you guys have all kind of hit on this uh, throughout this conversation, but I've been having a lot of conversations with Head Start directors across the state talking about some of these cuts coming and what it's going to mean, not just for the programs, but for the communities and for, for the Indiana communities that could face the closure of a Head Start classroom, the loss of some of these slots. One thing I've heard a lot is that, you know, it's going to mean that when these kids get to kindergarten, they're not 
you know, they may maybe in Head Start they've been identified as, you know, with a disability or with, you know, some special needs, and that's not going to happen. And I, I'm not sure if this is a, good, a great question for, for Michael or for Blakely, but, but kind of why is it so important to, you know, get these kids when they're, you know, three and four and younger and go ahead and identify some of these special services they may qualify when they get to the public school system? Right. Well, you know, as Shannon you know, uh, introduced at the very beginning of the hour, we know from research that we see the best learning, the best, best capability for learning during those early childhood years. You know, it's not that children stop learning when they turn five and go on, but we can make the greatest impact. And that's true for kids with disabilities or even invisible disabilities, such as learning disabilities. You know, um, you know, programs such as our First Steps Early Intervention Program in the state and our preschool special education programs um, have been funded for a long time and have the resources and the expertise to be able to identify and provide the kind of individualized services. But the biggest challenge in our state is child find, and that is finding those kids, especially kids that don't have significant and obvious disabilities. And so programs such as First Steps or the public school special ed preschool programs rely on either informed families or doctors. And sometimes families aren't quite sure if it's just something he'll grow out of. And doctors sometimes are not quite sure. They want to go down the emotional path of saying, gee, mom, you know, I think there's something wrong. And, you know, that's a pretty traumatic thing to hear in the life of family. Yet, we know and families will, you know, tell us years later that being identified and having access to those resources can do a lot. You know, I'm in thinking of what Tina was saying earlier about your do- daughter, mm-hmm. son, daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that the earlier we can identify, then schools can provide the individualized support so they're not swimming alone in a classroom of 20 to 28 kids. This is actually an area that I, I, I am pretty passionate about. Uh, one of the responsibilities in my job, of course, is to oversee child assessments, which we do twice a year. Uh, if children score in a below average range, then we reassess, we make referrals, and, and so we, too, have those partnerships with First Steps and with MCCSC and RBB, which is fantastic. Uh, along with learning disabilities and the importance of early childhood is for at least, I would say, for Blakely and I uh, – we work with low-income families, and I, I always say we don't know what, what goes on when they go home. I, we don't know um, if the last hug that they get of the day from me is the last hug they get of the day. And so we work really hard at, at Mackham, as I'm sure most high-quality programs do, is making those connections with the children. Uh, to be specific, uh, specific experience that I have uh, that I think is important is that um, my daughter is adopted, and um, I, she was six when she went into foster care, which was with me. And so I think back to her biological family and her experience in the first six years, and it completely gives me, it gives me a complete understanding of why she does what she does at 19 because of not having those connections made in early on, both um, emotionally cognitively. So those things are all very important. And we work very hard at that uh, at Mackin, which is why we do parenting classes and why we do the assessments. Um, We do a specific kindergarten readiness assessment as well. And um, recently I've connected with a kindergarten program with MCCSC and did a comparison between the evaluation that they do and the evaluation that we do. And I was pleasantly surprised that our evaluation it was really a lot more comprehensive because we could identify more uh, issues with, let's say, visual discrimination or auditory issues um, in processing. And so we're able to see uh, where kids need to, to be a little further developed before they go so that we can start the ball rolling on that and then it can carry on into public school. Mm-hmm. All right. We have 10 more minutes. Eight five five zero eight one one. 877-285-9348, or you can go to the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have had one question that came in. Uh, someone wants to know if play-based education will be allowed, I assume with the new bill. Um, she says there's good research that it's helpful. Somebody want to address that? 
Well, I, I, I'm, we might get differing opinions on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if the bill specifies, you know, the, a particular model. Yeah. I think one of the things when I, I had the opportunity to, to uh, talk with Representative Boehning, and one of the things that, you know, pressed upon him was the fact that, you know, the programs that they fund, or at least the, the programs that are eligible to receive the vouchers from families, are of high quality. And, um, you know, level three doesn't cut it. You know, we need, really do need to look at a, a national accredited programs and better. And the other thing we impressed upon them were curricula that are evidence-based. And, um, you know, there's, there's research that's starting to come out that's challenging our beliefs about play-based, you know, models. It depends on how the teachers interact with kids. You know, when Shannon was describing her Reggio Emilia approach, when teachers are engaged in having those goal-focused conversations, then we see learning. But if kids are left to their own to explore and discover, we don't see good learning. And, you know, if teachers are actively involved, you know, with goals in mind, then we see we see better learning. So... Shannon? Yeah, I, I think if we're, we're talking about particular curriculum, that I think the only requirements in the bill, it's got to be a pathways quality three or four, and there's got to be a parental in, involvement component of it. Um, I think the rest is going – how it's currently written it will be re, um, left up to um, – the Division of Family and Resources that's housed under um, FSSA. Okay. I don't think we've really defined what's in H, you know, House Bill 1004. I know it's uh, it's with the Senate now. Um, so can somebody can, sort of – I can say, take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it's a pilot <laughs> program. It's a pilot yeah, program. Yeah, so right? it's a, it's a five-county p- pilot. Um, it, a thousand students will be eligible – um, you know, pending the bill passes, um, at for six to eight hundred dollars per student. Um, again, it, the determination for those, those counties' pilots will um, take place in um, the Divi- Division of Family Resources. Um, there is a component of the bill that was added in um, House Committee that is. Um, getting a little bit of attention, um, especially from the Democrat Party and um, from the public school um, teachers. Uh, And that deals with um, the access to vouchers. Traditionally, um, I think the requirement is, and I'm not a voucher expert, is that you have to be in a public school for two semesters before you access these vouchers. And a portion of this bill would allow those involved in um, the pre-K scholarships to um, be um, able to access these vouchers, um, you know, for, for kindergarten and first grade. And um, the theory behind this is if you go to a, you know, St. Simon's uh, pre-K, you know, academy or whatever, that you're able to then go to that kindergarten and first grade um, and have some continuity. Um, now, that's not to say that you go to this private pro- program and, you know, you go to a different school. I mean, it's not specifically outlined in the bill. But um, from, from, my, um, from my understanding of the bill, that, w- that was the intent of including the voucher language in there. Okay. You know, we, we just had um, a comment in our live chat about, you know, the, the need for community so- support for these programs. I think this goes back onto the conversation we were having earlier about um, the quality of programs and the fact that, you know, Head Start has come under some scrutiny. I know that I had a conversation with Tina earlier this month about um, – you know, the, the need for these high-quality programs and, and some of the steps that, that just her program is taking to, to you know, be nationally certified and um, to do this job. I, I know that one thing that I've, I've taken a real interest in as a, as a reporter is, you know, how much lower pre-K salaries are for teachers and for educators than they are at the public school system. Um, can you guys just talk a little bit more about some of those, what, what those terms high-quality means when we, when, we, when we talk about pre-K education? High-quality. <laughs> Likely, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, I think each each person kind of looks at it differently. Mm-hmm. Our aspect of high quality is 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 when we look at our creative curriculum and we go online and we see what indicators those children have met. Is it across the board? And so we try to promote that all of our children are across the board in the same aspect. If they're not, how do we get them to that? Like you were saying a minute ago, and we do those extra steps to get them there. You know, we um, have a lot of cr- classrooms that are part of Pasta Quality. Not all of our program is, is because we don't have, and all of our sites are licensed. And so I think that's a little misconception as well, um, is that some of ours are um, uh, in the Pasta Quality process. Some of them have to be, like our early Head Start classrooms have to be, but we don't always 
have the funding to be a part of that because it costs a lot of money to have your facilities um, based for this. And they come in and scrutinize you about every other day, which is understandable. But the high quality part, I think, are two different things of with uh, of what each program looks at. I would expect Busy Bees has their goals and, and standards the same the way with all that we do. Right. And so I think each of us look at our high quality um, different than most. But. Okay. I, I, and I just – I, I want to ask a question um, related to the House bill. The pilot programs, if they um, look at um, – I know recently I was at a meeting and they were talking about them, you know, four-year-olds going to elementary school and that these programs would be in the elementary school. Uh, my question is, will they be requiring – teachers to have elementary ed degrees? Will they be taking teachers and reassigning them if they eliminate positions, as they do? I think it might be called RIF, but I'm not sure. And I, I have a concern about that. And I, I think the concern is that children under the age of five have a different, they require a teacher to have a different skill set. And I've heard many stories of teachers being placed in four-year-old programs that coming from teaching third grade, and they are floored and have no idea how to function with a four-year-old group of kids because that skill set is different. And so my concern just personally is that they're going to require L-Ed majors Mm -hmm. because it's in public school Mm -hmm. when it should be early childhood. I think in part of that, they talked about like with our Head Start, that if you have a K to six degree, that you would qualify um, to be a part of this bill and for ours as well. But we look at a lot more of the the early childhood degrees. But it's hard to find one of those because it's such a small, broad-based degree. I mean, you only get, what, five years in that, and it's hard for them to find um, employment if they go just for that degree, which I agree with you, though. Which very quickly i want to get to bob our caller so bob bob are you there hey bob we have about a minute to go two minutes hey that's me uh yes go ahead yeah. bob uh great yeah greeting very very quickly bob we have less than two minutes uh, well, just with regard to the statement about when you have uh play-based uh, le- uh, uh programs that the desired learning outcomes aren't achieved. There must be a very limited set of learning outcomes that are being measured. Uh, Not only the social skills that are developed through play, but such things as curiosity, persistence, uh, exploring the environment, the types of uh, outcomes that are important not only to character in life and success in school, uh, but the kinds of uh, learning that is promoted by people who think a constructivist approach to, to teaching and learning is very important in developing uh, people who uh, are problem solvers, who are reflective, and uh, can make a contribution to others. And I just was very surprised by the, uh, the statement about uh, the desired learning outcomes were not being achieved. They must be very limited. Okay, Bob, we're going to have to cut you off, and I'm going to have to cut everybody off. I'm sorry, we're out of time. <laughs> oh. We can't even respond to that. Uh, I do. I am compelled to say that Monroe County, the Monroe County Foundation, has made early childhood education uh, its top priority for this year as well. That's so great. I wanted to make sure and get that in here. So thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, our guests, Michael Compowers, Tina Pender. Shannon Kylie Hyder and Blakely Clements for co-host Ellie Moxley, producers Gretchen Frazee and our new producer Emily Wright. And thank you, Julie Raw, for your time with us. And engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.